Are you stuck in a job you don't like? Are you passing up business opportunities because they aren't a guarantee? Do you want to make a big change but are fearful of stepping out of your comfort zone? Today on Think Tank of Three, we have a special guest to help us get over being afraid of taking risks but making sure we're being smart about it. You've made it this far in your career, but is something holding you back from getting to the top? We're ditching the culture of competitiveness. We're women working together to help other women. We are Think Tank of Three. I'm Audrea, your business development coach. I'm Julie, your digital marketing strategist. And I'm Catherine, your media and public speaking expert. Three women from different backgrounds coming together to empower, support, and encourage other women professionally and personally. Let's do this together. Welcome to the Think Tank of Three. I'm Audrea Fink here with Julie Holton and our special guest, Carolyn Gary. Caroline owns a brand strategy, visual design, and customer experience consultancy. She approaches brand with a business mindset to drive initiatives that increase profits, improve perception and awareness, and promote the brand's culture and values. She has significant experience in the healthcare industry, and when she's not chipping away at those messy systems, she's helping startups to secure funding by perfecting the art of the investor pitch and helping nonprofits to build a community by building better brands. She has worked with clients, including Virginia Mason, HCA, Anthem, Populous Global Architectural Design Firm, and National Co-op Grocers. Carolyn, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Caroline and I met through the Leadership Tomorrow program in Seattle and bonded pretty quickly. So we were at a happy hour and Carolyn started talking about some of her history and her skill sets with calculated risk. And as it turns out, she is a master at taking risks. And I thought this was such an empowering topic. I really wanted to bring it to the think tank. So let's dive right in, Caroline, and talk about what is calculated risk. Can you break that down a bit for us and give us an example? Sure. Well, when I was thinking about talking with you all today, I thought about how I advise clients in business risk, which is so different when I was reflecting on personal risk. But a lot of times what I do is weigh trade-offs. Every choice that you make, you're making a trade-off decision of this as opposed to that. And it really helps to consider all possible outcomes and not to be tied to any outcomes. So I just want to emphasize the word possible outcomes. So it could be things like, who are my competitors? Who's already in this space? And how are they owning that space? And how could I be different? What are the risks of an already crowded market? What are the financial risks? I think a lot about things, a really specific example would be somebody who's really wanting to open a small business, but maybe there's a large overhead investment, a cost that they can't get around. For example, I've got one client who is starting a coffee roasting company and had to invest in a roaster. And it's it's an expensive, hard cost that he really can't get around. But in order to pursue his dream, he has to. Uh, there's operational risks and uh, reputational risks. If you think about having a strong point of view, right, as a business, and maybe you come out and say you've got a political view or a values-driven view, and you um, risk the possibility of alienating a customer base. So those are there's a lot of things. There's probably about I don't know, 50 more that we could list, probably actually closer to 100. But it's really taking an analytical view at all of those things because a lot of times our emotions play a much larger uh, factor in the way that we make decisions than we really think that they do. 
It's really interesting the concept of reputational risks that you just touched on because uh, you work with a lot of your clients on strategy and on building their brand strategy. And something that we're noticing a lot right now with the movement right now, right now online, especially with social media, is seeing brands, big brands, start to stake their reputation behind causes. And we see a lot of CEOs and business leaders that are speaking out on causes. And, um, and we find that the consumers really want this. They really want to know that the company they're supporting with their dollars is, um, is taking action. And I would consider that to be a really big risk. So talk about that a little bit. How do you advise your clients when it's um, kind of blurring the lines between personal and professional? This is such a great question. This actually goes to a lot of what we're talking about in our Leadership Tomorrow class too, about how do my personal leadership values come in conflict with my professional leadership values? And my answer is going to be, it's going to be really straightforward because I have a small business. And so it's my choice. I've, I've taken the reins on that and said, I'm going to stand behind things that I believe in and say no thank you to those that I don't, even if it means losing a job or a scope that I could win. We talk a lot about authenticity and brand building, and it's become such a buzzword. And so has storytelling, and so has all of these many things that we're really using in this very bizarre way to manipulate people's emotions and feelings. That's, that's what brand does. And I've struggled over the years with my feelings on that. I think it can be used for great things, though, too. And to your point, when a company says, this is what we believe, this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is what we believe, this is why it matters. I think you really build trust. And my opinion is when it comes to things like building loyalty or share of wallet would be the more businessy way to say that with customers, you're really looking to build their trust. And when you have that, it's the same way that we make decisions about our friends and our families and all of the other things that we hold dear. Customers are so much smarter now than they used to be. They're not a captive audience in front of a TV at five o'clock PM watching the news anymore. And so there's not this top down funnel of the way that we consume media. And so there's just, it, it, it's so pervasive, all of the way that we, the inputs that we have and companies that are smart are picking up on that. And they're realizing that it's very off-putting actually to kind of have the company man brand point of view, which is very perfect. And people know that that's not the truth. Like the truth is that I, I use this reference this week, actually, um, healthcare companies really want to build the app right? Uh, an insurance company, for example, but let's build a, an app and we want to empower our patients and there's going to be a lot of wellness tools on there and cost and transparency. And, and that's great. I think a lot of times the healthcare companies really do want to do that because they feel like they're behind, right? They're behind even the, the financial industry has been so much faster to move with predictive analytics and all of these different uh, technologies we have available. But the truth is, that the healthcare companies just don't want to maybe invest the money into staffing a call center with full-time employees because it's more expensive. And I guess the theme here is pitching something or standing behind something for reasons that are not actually the real ones. And when companies come out and say, hey, actually, operationally, we're really struggling with this. There is a demand that we are not able to uh, fill, and it's about our margin. And just this honesty is something that I'm, I'm trying to bring back, this like radical sense of honesty uh, with my clients. It's my job. That's what they pay me for. 
And that is not the way most of corporate America conducts business. And so um, some of the smarter companies are beginning to do that more. I think even a really great example is the way that Lyft and Uber have drawn this very direct parallel, right? They, they offer in many ways the same thing, but their point of view is so different. Yes. So, you know, things like that, I think, are really starting to illustrate in a very tangible way. Wow, Lyft, when I think of Lyft, I think much more values driven. I think that there's still some challenges there. Um, but I think that if you're contrasting against Uber, who's playing sort of that, you know, they're, they're a rebel in a very different way by not um, considering the implications that they might bring to a city. They're just saying, well, sue us and we'll figure it out later. That's a good example, I think, of standing behind values. Lyft is saying, no, we want to work together. We want to figure out how this can work for the long term. Yeah. I, that parallel between those two is really fascinating, too, because they are um, – they are taking their own risks in that, right? Lyft is risking the clients or contacts who don't align with their value system and Uber is risking theirs. So it's an interesting balance. So I read this article in Inc. What successful people know about taking calculated risks. And in the article, the author talks about balancing that feeling of fear versus the actual weight of risk. So sometimes, like with public speaking, we fear it more than the risk warrants, but then we tend to fear some things like driving your car with less fear than statistically speaking that should warrant, right? It's more dangerous to drive a car than to speak publicly. Can you tell us about how you've balanced that fear versus risk equation and then share some tactics we can take when looking to judge judge that ratio fairly? And again, this is, these are such great questions. I, I mentioned this earlier, so I, I'd like to touch on it and dive a little bit deeper. It, it really does start with trust. You know, I think at the end of the day, you can really know about yourself when you're doing something that is negligent, or if you're, you know, I call it betting against myself. And I think the bigger thing is to start small. You don't have to make a, a really giant choice about a risk quickly. You know, you can workshop it with friends and colleagues and a lot of self-reflection. But even before that, I do want to mention something that I thought was really brilliant that um, Audrey mentioned the other day as we were meeting for our leadership group, which is that I was able to take a really calculated risk in starting my own business, which I'd like to share a personal story about that. Because I knew that if I failed, I had a safety net to fall on which was that of at that time I was married and I did not have, I have a son, he's two and a half. I did not have a, a child yet. And so when I was weighing these different possible outcomes, not being tied to any of them, I knew that the worst case was that I was a hot mess and I failed and that I would need to know when to tell myself, Hey, this isn't working and that I could just find another full-time job. If I had been single, I'm not sure that I would have done this. I think I could have, which is the interesting thing, but I don't know that in making this calculation that it would have felt safe enough because the other part of my mind really likes the idea of safety and security, as we all do. You know, we've got our, we've got to pay for food, we've got to pay for rent, we've got to pay for, you know, all the many things just to exist and health insurance is a big one and so I want to acknowledge that because I feel like it was, it was definitely from a place of privilege that I was able to, to do this at all. So I think it would be um, wrong not to acknowledge that because that was honestly the very first 
of a decision tree was that I could. And so um, that's something that I think can be really challenging when you're thinking about, oh, chase your dreams. And sometimes um, that would be a really, it's a lovely thing to say that, but it's not always possible. That is such a great point, and I can relate personally to that, Caroline, because um, I also have my own business. You know, it's interesting, though, because I think sometimes we put our own limitations on ourselves, and whether that's right or wrong, it's part of our risk assessment of our own personal lives. And so when I started my business, you know, I'm single, and so I don't have you know, a partner, but I looked at it like I don't have someone else who's counting on me. Like I'm, and I don't have any dependents. I don't have anyone who, you know, of course I, I need my salary. I need to pay my own bills, but I felt a little more secure in saying, okay, I'm taking this risk for myself. I'm not making this choice for other people. But I think one thing that really struck me, and I bring this up for anyone out there who might be considering starting their own business or someone who might be just starting down that path. We often think of our jobs as being secure when they're not. And we also, we, we often forget that we're relying on that boss or relying on the financial well-being of that company, the stability for us to, for, to keep those positions, those jobs, things that we have absolutely no control over and often no insight into depending on what our positions are. And so I think sometimes people often create their own false sense of security. So it's just something that as we're weighing these risks of if you're going to start your own business or if you're going to make a career change or any kind of move in life to just really think about the facts, like that big picture. That's a really great point. Um, I love the idea of maybe where you're at at your you know, big company is not really safe and secure. And maybe there is some security in you know, running your own business. And so that's a brilliant way to look at like the calculated risks involved in that. Carolyn, can you just talk to us a little bit about the shift that you made, like where you were working before, what you were doing, and then the shift to building your own business and talk to us a little bit about what you left behind and, and what you gained. Yeah, I had the great honor is really the right word of working for a couple of incredible, really strong female entrepreneurs that were models for me. My dad was an entrepreneur too, but it was different seeing a woman doing it. It was just different because my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I had never seen women be like this. It dramatically impacted the way that I show up at meetings and the way I feel like I have contributions to make. And modeling myself after them was one of the best things that I think that I ever did because I started working for these women when I was in my mid-20s. Uh, one of them, her name is Kat Jones. She is a dear friend and mentor, and I had never seen anyone work like her before, and I wanted to be just like her. She gave direct access to her employees for the risks that she took. Every year, we had this really great company meeting called the Summit, and she would show us financials. She would show us BizDev opportunities on the horizon and what it takes to land things like this, how we qualify clients, what this means operationally for our team and for resourcing and really, really open about these things. And I don't think I would have had any idea what it would take to run a business had it not been for her ability to bring everyone in behind the curtain. A lot of leaders don't do that. It's maybe a select group of three, five, 10, depending on how large the company is. At this time, her business, we had about 30 employees. So it wasn't tiny. 
And she really wanted everyone to understand that their jobs all contributed to the success of the business. So she inspired a shared vision, which is one of our Leadership Tomorrow principles. So I think about that, and she really did well on that. I had a second boss. Uh, many years later, I ended up moving from Austin, which is where I worked for Cat Jones at Milkshake. I moved to Houston, and I moved there because my husband had been asked to move there for his work. And it was a lot, it brought a lot of change with it. I'd, you know, been on this career path. It was before a lot of people began to work remotely. And so my opportunities were a little different. You know, I needed to switch jobs. I actually ended up working for Milkshake remotely for a while because I realized that I could ask. And after that, though, uh, there became a time where I was ready for something new. And I worked for another company called Longrand, and the owner, her name is Shannon Longrand, similarly, really shows what it means to like bring it like end business as a female. And I, I wanted to do that too. I, at some point I thought like, I, I love these women and I love everything that I've learned. And I think part of what they're teaching me is that I can do this, right? Like part of the reason that they're showing me these things and part of the reason that they're talking with me about, you know, financials and all, especially transparency around cost is a huge thing. I think for leadership to, to show because of a lot of the reasons that you mentioned earlier, a lot of times employees are really separated from the numbers and on purpose. And I think in many ways they were mentoring myself and, and several others to prepare us for something that they saw in us that was reminiscent of what they used to be like before they started on their own journeys. And we never had an explicit conversation about this though. It just sort of started boiling in, in my body. And the reason that I started my own business is because I was working and a, a more agency style job and the hours are pretty intense. It's long days and everybody who's in it is expecting that. We know what we've signed up for. It's, it's part of the job. Right. But I wanted to volunteer a lot more in my community. And specifically, I wanted to go to, to Houston City Council meetings and show up for that. And those were at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I couldn't do that from a regular job. And, yeah. And so it brought up a lot of conflicting feelings. And eventually, I just said, like, I, I don't know. I feel drawn to support my community. I've got to do this. I can't do this from a regular job. I'm leaving the company. And I can't believe in some ways that I did that now because I was leaving to follow passions that were around community. But I know now that it's because community is a really important thing that I use as a metric to qualify my own clients. And so I was actually headed toward not just wanting to volunteer, I was headed toward this entire space that I wanted to commit myself and my business to supporting these values, right? So I, um, a lot of my work is around things like access to healthcare, Things like building community through engagement around issues. And um, it's not really a traditional advertising route where you do, you know, product marketing or things like that. I've, I've gone actually the direct opposite from that. So I took this risk because I'd had really great models in other leaders that showed me what it looked like. Well, and it sounds like not only did you take a risk in shifting from maybe, maybe more stable, although it sounds like we've, I mean, we've already discussed how it's more stable is maybe an illusion. But so you took this role, you left a role to go to your own business, but then even your own business style was different. And so in its own way, its own calculated risk to not necessarily just do the normal or the usual or the expected. 
That's right. I, I have a degree in graphic design. Like that's what I went to school for. And that is a part of what I'm doing now, but it's only a tiny part. So I always joke with people and I have an incredible amount of respect for folks who have real MBAs. I don't have one. Running my business is my MBA. And it is, gosh, it is not wrong that it's kind of close to that because there are real risks here. It's not even just academic, right? Like I, it's, it's actually happening. And so what happened was I, I noticed in, for example, pricing out large scopes of work that those are huge clients, right? Who have budgets of a million dollars and on the other hand, you've got the opportunity as a graphic designer to do gig-based work, freelancing. And that doesn't feel right to me. Freelancers, not, I don't feel like that's what I'm doing. And there's this giant space in between the idea of these million-dollar budgets and freelancing. And to me, that's an opportunity. And I think that's a really large part of calculated risks is by not saying, oh, I've got to play up here where everybody else is, but saying, well, where's like, where's the empty space where I can really go in and make a difference? Like that's my, that's my opportunity. And that's what I saw. And so I thought, gosh, I think there are a lot of really great organizations where maybe they don't have a million dollars, but maybe they've got a budget somewhere between 10,000 and 75,000. Like we can work with that. And so I think that was, I was really proud when that was one of my first light bulb moments was thinking, gosh, I think there's actually an incredible amount of business there and it would be truly mutually beneficial. You know, it's my job to every client to say like, truly, what's your budget? I'm never going to exploit that. And so again, we start from a place with trust. Uh, they, they can count on me to tell them, look, you told me you've got $15,000. I think we can do it for 75, you know, $7,500. It's, it, I have a lot of pride in building a reputation that is understanding of the risks on both sides. Because I know that a company who's got $15,000, for example, if we've built trust, that's what they have. And they're making a bet on me to be able to deliver them what they need. And I want to pay it forward by saying, I'm going to be really honest with you and I'm going to take a risk of not capturing a greater margin, right? I could, I could do the work for 15 grand and knowing that it's going to cost 7,500 and walk away with a margin of 7,500. But I wouldn't feel right about that. And I think in the, in the end, they would know and customer retention and building loyalty and some of the things that we talked about earlier, those are real things. Those are not fake things like the buzz buzzwords around authenticity. It's lived. So that's a big thing for me, but I never thought that I would find myself, you know, doing the purchasing expenses, invoicing, budgeting, you know, profit and loss reports. And I was told like, actually, like you should probably call that like a PL. And I was like, I don't know. Like I just, all I know is that I'm living this every day and that it's working. And I think I'm trying to do it right, but I'm trying to do it right by taking a lot of calculated risks, which is sometimes a project might not be a fit for me, or maybe operationally, I can't support it in the way that I need to, to do it right. And so saying no to those things is really hard because you think, oh, but I really could do it. I want to do this. And you can't really build the airplane while it's flying. So, well, and, let's, and let's be real. The authenticity that you're talking about, that you're describing, it's not to say that it doesn't exist with the big ad agencies or with the really big competitors that would capture that full budget. Like, I mean, of course it exists on that level. Um, but the way you're describing it it really sets you apart. And I think it sets people like us apart, whether we're business owners or whoever we are in our position, it really, and it's something that right now, 
with all of the challenges going on and all of the social um, responses that we're seeing online with these various movements, I think that it's something that people are hungry for. They want the authenticity. They want the brand that they can trust. And when you can sit down with and develop that relationship, it just shows that you're someone that they want to work with on every level. But talk to a little bit about the sacrifices that it takes to get to that point, because there are things that I'm sure you're giving up to be that authentic person and to stay true to your personal values in your business. Can you talk about that a little bit? I can. I, I'm trying to play the long game is the best way that I could put it, but it's been really hard, especially I, I mentioned earlier, I've got a two and a half year old and it's a lot. And I think, gosh, like this was a pretty wild thing to start with a small child. I, I do a bit of travel for business and I've got to show up a hundred and, you know, 50 bajillion percent. I, I don't have employees yet. That's something that I'm thinking about doing potentially next year. I'm, I, I'm at a crossroads right now. I either need to grow and, and, and build a support staff to support me because I've right now I've reached a ceiling in my day, which is amazing. And I, absolutely try not to be frustrated by that because if I could go back and tell myself three years ago when I started my company that this was my future, I would be so proud that this is, this is my problem now. It's not, oh my gosh, can I find a client? So that's, I tried to, I think if we could be entrepreneurs and remember our first days, you could keep a little bit of that like zest and zeal because our palette for risk changes dramatically when we have something to lose. You're holding on to what you have instead of being willing to try for what you don't have. And that's just a mindset that is hard to remember. And I think it, you know, it evidences throughout different phases of life, personally and professionally. I think for me, the biggest risk has been, and can I be a great mom? Because I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur and my dad was not around much. And, you know, he wasn't really like a he wasn't like a dad kind of a dad, you know, anyway, but I saw that. I, I remember that. And I really want for my son, for him to think that what I'm doing is awesome and that I'm around. And the other day, I'd, I'd like to share a caveat. He, he said, mama, you be the baby. I'll be the mama. And then he comes to me and he says, baby, mama's going to a meeting, but I'll be back. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. My son sees his mom work and is proud of that. And he said, baby, because I was being the baby, he said, baby, I'm going to a meeting, but, I, but I'm going to be back. And I thought, great, like not only because he's two and a half. And so the fear of me leaving and not coming back is a really real thing when you're you know, nurturing a young mind. And I loved that he knew that both I was going to a meeting and that I would be back. So that, the fear there though of, negatively impacting my child and having him know that that he matters and that I'm working both on my goals and for him the balance there is something that I'm I'm learning every day how to do that and what that means for me and what that means for when I need to say no or what my limits are and it's been a challenge for sure I think that's a really beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. We actually talked a little bit about this story in our happy hour mm-hmm. and I think it's a common fear women have about not being, not being there for their mm-hmm. families, but also it's a way, I, I think it's the new normal is women are working, right? And, and um, it's important, I think, for us 
to see that we can, I don't want to say find the balance because I think that's bull. Um, no one asks men how they find balance. But I think that is a good example of how you, you show up living your values and also working your values. So it's a, it's a good balance. You found how to make that work. So what are some of the questions as you're looking at the risks you're going to be taking? What are some questions you ask yourself to assess risk, whether it's worth it, right? Can I go to this meeting and still show up for my kid? Can I go to this meeting and still live my values? How do you, how do you make those assessments? What are the questions that we could ask ourselves if we're looking to make those decisions as well? Gosh, well, I'll tell you that the things that I ask myself are very different than the advisement I give my clients. And so I'd like to do some reflecting on that later to think about, gosh, like why, why do I have different criteria for my clients? They're probably struggling with the same things I am. For me, it manifests a lot in my ability to say no. Because I think aside from being a great parent and aside from large financial risk, right, like our livelihood, my biggest fear is around, again, like losing something that I've worked so hard to gain. And so a lot of times that would be something like, okay, if I say no to this opportunity, if I say no to a client, maybe even a client that I've had for a really long time, because I love to be the hero for my clients. It's one of my favorite things. I love to show up as a trusted advisor and I, I love to help yes. them reach their outcomes. That's, that is what I do. My business model is one that is built around customer intimacy. I am super passionate about that. And I mean it in a, in a genuine way, which is that they have access to me. They can call me on the phone. I'm not even going to bill them for it. You know, I really want to show up as a partner, not as a vendor. And so we built a relationship. And so Funny enough, though, after building this relationship, some of them, you know, multi-year, I'm always afraid to say no because I'm terrified of letting someone down because at this point, it's not transactional to me. They are, I'm in it with them and saying no feels very risky. It's that it feels risky in a couple of ways. One being, are they going to begin thinking of me like I'm not on their team if I say no? And also the possibility that they might take their business elsewhere. That feels like a giant risk too. And so that's something that I am constantly battling with myself about, okay, if I say yes to this, what does that mean for maybe my evening or my uh, family life or sacrificing or deprioritizing another job? You know, those are a lot of choices that you have to make. You know, what falls below the line, I guess is what I would say versus what falls above the line. And those are challenging choices. And a lot of times it's hard when you're, a customer intimacy focused business of one to make choices that are putting something above or below a line because they're all important. And my clients, you know, they're not large conglomerates. They're, they're businesses that are not too dissimilar from mine. And each one of them is important is the truth, but it comes down to what can I reasonably do in a day? So that's a, that's a large question I ask myself is if I say no, what could happen? And if I say yes, what could happen? You know, good and bad. Sometimes saying yes means bad for me or vice versa. You know, it's, it's a bit messy. And one of the big things that I love that I've borrowed from, from one of my um, mentors I mentioned earlier from Shannon, she says this all the time, embrace ambiguity. And I think that that's amazing. And I think when I started to do that, to like truly embrace ambiguity, it allowed for Honestly, like having some fun in the hot mess of running a small business. You're just like, I don't know, but I'm trying my absolute best and I'm, I'm not going to be tied to perfect. 
So that's a big one for me too. I know Audrey knows I, I have OCD, I, the real kind, and perfection is really woven into that. And so there's a risk of that too and saying, gosh, like what does it feel like to, is giving my 80% actually, you know, maybe some other relative, uh, you know, maybe it's more like 120% for somebody else. My husband jokes with me about that a lot and I'm learning how to do that. It's funny though, because for others, you know, for businesses, my advisement would be super different, right? It would be things like uh, market sizing and competitive analysis. And did you take a look at, you know, forecasting and trend and, you know, what's your cash flow situation like, or gosh, like how, how much is it going to cost to build this MVP if it's like a tech platform or startup? And those are so different, right? They're so businessy. And a lot of times at the end of the day, like somebody's just scared. I think though that those can go back to your question of what happens if I say yes versus what happens if I say no. I think if you're looking at, you know, competitive analysis or areas of opportunity, what happens if you say yes to investing here? What does that mean? Well, it could mean you lose that investment, but what happens if you say no? Well, it could mean you lose that opportunity. So I don't think they're so dissimilar. Um, my boss on a pretty regular basis um, says, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough or enemy of getting it done. And so a lot of times I do think, well, I want this to be perfect. Or I, you know, I work with attorneys and that can be its own challenge. And so I want them to see that this is perfect. And so it will take me a really long time to get something done, or I just won't be able to move the ball forward because it's not there yet. And it defeats the, per like, it's not productive. Whereas if I got it good enough, the worst thing that happens is that they correct the mistakes, which is what it means to work on a team anyway. So that risk is, is I guess, in a lot of ways, not real. It's, it's sort of what's in your own mind. But I think you can apply it to business as well, right? Is there, there's an opportunity cost for everything. Are you willing to say yes? And if so, what does that look like? Are you willing to say no? And if so, what does that look like, right? There's, there's risks on both sides. And I'm going to sound like a broken record throughout this podcast, but I think it all comes back to you staying authentic to your business values. So you're not saying no to clients because you don't feel like doing the work or you want to take an extra vacation next month. Like you're saying no because you want to preserve that value. And I can understand that so well. <clears throat> My team actually this summer I took about a four to six month or four to six week break of taking on new clients because we, we had a wall, we were at capacity and, um, and I was laying awake at night thinking of, um, how were we going to get everything done and how was I, um, how was I continuing to build my team and support my team when all I was doing was just giving them more and more work. And we, I really started to worry about the quality versus the quantity, because for us, it's always been about, it doesn't matter how many clients we have, we're doing our very best for, you know, like you talked about like 120% for every single client. Well, at some point those numbers add up obviously add up. more than a hundred percent. Yeah. And so there just, there aren't enough hours in the day. There aren't enough people on the team. And so we just, I said, okay, I have to hit pause because I have to protect my team. I have to protect our values and what matters to us. And I have to protect the clients that we already have. And so what and I do you have to protect yourself and your own mental health and emotional stability and physical As Audrey health. Knows, absolutely. <laughs> 
because it comes down to what, like you said, Caroline, what happens if you say yes versus if you say no. And the other thing I like that you, that you touched on is the transparency, having these conversations where if a client needs something or is asking for something and you sit down and you look at, okay, is that like, what is this timeline? What does that look like? Maybe you're not actually saying no, which I'm sure comes really easy for your two and a half year old, but really hard for us as adult <laughs> business owners to say no. But, but are you really saying no? Or are you looking further down the timeline? Are you looking at, you know, cause you're, I'm sure you're problem solving and you're figuring out other ways to say, I need more time or I'm at my capacity. This gosh, there's so much here in all of this. I'd also love to know if there's a book, How to Say No, like I say no to my two-year-old. If there's not, there shouldn't be. There is. My boyfriend bought it for me. I will put it in the notes of the podcast because I cannot remember the name of it off the top of my head. Although I swear I read it, right? Um, no, actually, I just he just, said, he just bought me a book, but it's all about the art of saying no. And it, it's just about this. It's, you're not actually saying no, but you're having to work through that transparency and that authenticity. And it's the self-preservation. But there is a book. Absolutely. And oddly enough, like saying no can really help with my own brand positioning, which is one of high value customer intimacy, you know, showing up as an advisor. And when work has to be done so quickly, or, or maybe I'm at a, you know, reached a ceiling, I, I don't want to do work that feels transactional. That is exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to build. I, I run into a lot of these operational stressors exactly like you've described when it comes to being at capacity. So on the one hand, saying no is necessary, you know, and limiting uh, to what I can reasonably do and do it right within a certain time. On the other hand, that's fighting against that. Another risk that I calculate is um, biz dev and what's that work funnel? What's the long-term, what work do I have projected over the next quarter or two? Because I am 100% responsible for that. That, that is how my business makes it or breaks it. And I'll be honest, I've invested a lot more in retention strategies than I have even a finding new biz. I, I think it's so much more expensive and so much more time consuming to go out and find new biz. On the other hand, I do spend a bit of time contributing to RFPs and that's a, a, a huge lift. It can be hours and hours and hours of work that may or may not pay off. And those are some of those more calculated risks that are truly coming down to what's the possible payoff of this. If well, I think operationally I can support that. So one of the things that I coach my attorneys on is that 80% of your work should be coming from clients you already have 20% or 80% of your time should be devoted to getting work from clients you have 20% or less should be devoted to landing new clients because the more you service the clients that you have, the better service you're able to offer, the more likely they're going to come back. And it is cheaper for you and beneficial for them because then it's long-term. When you spend your business development efforts chasing the new, you spend a lot of time chasing opportunities that won't come to fruition simply because they take time. And you spend a lot of time that you could be spending reinvesting in people who already believe in you, who already buy into what you're offering and who already see value in you. So I think that is a very smart calculated risk. You still need to get new clients, especially as a new business. New is required um, and you can't exist forever if you're not looking out for new. But if you are not spending the majority of your time making sure that the clients that you have that are good quality clients, the clients you want to keep, 
um, are not bringing in more work, then I think you're making a poor risk. I could not agree more. I, I feel the same way. And I've thought a lot about that this year because I do continue to go after new work. And I'm at a, I'm at a transition right now where I'm deciding, I'm, I'm weighing the risks of what does it look like for me to bring on, for example, a full-time employer too, and continue to win more work and to be able to have the support staff to really, you know, create deliverables that are that full value. I would never sacrifice the level of work that would go against everything that I'm doing. That's one route. The other direction that I'm considering going is winning new work and keeping, absolutely keeping that 80%. I could not agree with you more. It's exactly the way that I like to work. So when I do win new clients, can I support them? And if I can't, maybe I need to reconsider qualifying clients. Maybe there are some old clients that don't fit where I'm headed. And it's a growing pains thing. And again, if I could, if I could go back and talk to myself a few years ago and say, look, these are the decisions that you're going to be weighing in a few years. There's nothing to do but to celebrate that. So while I feel a little bit stressed out about which way am I going to go, it's really great to be able to ask myself that question. We're talking to Caroline Gary, who owns a brand strategy, visual design, and customer experience consultancy. Caroline, for our listeners today, if we want to flex those calculated risk muscles, what are some everyday ways that our listeners can, can start right now practicing taking some of these calculated risks? Well, for starters, you could speak on a podcast. <laughs> like great... the three. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Seriously, it's a great, great way to exercise and flex that muscle. Uh, you could begin telling people things about yourself that maybe you've been hiding um, or harboring. For me personally this year, I've talked a lot about being a business leader and having my own mental health issues like OCD and anxiety, I, that's a risk I think more and more people are doing and it would be cool to be part of that movement together. And I mean, honestly, like stuff like, what if you go to a restaurant and let's say that you don't have a crazy food allergy and you're not gonna end up at the ER, like order that wild thing off the menu that you kind of want to do, but oh, I always get this. Like just see how it feels, try it on. And like what, you know, where, what was the outcome? What's the worst that could happen? You know, you order something different or you're a little hungry afterward. And that sounds really silly, but if you think about it, anytime that you're doing something slightly outside of your norm, I think that's great. So, you know, it could be anything from travel to reading books about subjects that you really don't know much about and you're, you know, slowly becoming a subject matter expert you know, stuff like that, that's just not, nothing dramatic. You know, again, you always can trust yourself not to be negligent, though I do think a lot about high dives, right? Like the Olympic high divers. And I think, oh my gosh, like there had to be a first time that they actually like dove into the pool. Like how freaky would that be? And it occurred to me that they learned to really trust their body, that they had done a series of repetitive motions. And, you know, again, trust is probably my biggest uh, thing that I would offer is that you know yourself. And you're not going to order something off the menu that's going to make you feel sick. You know, there's a limit there, I think, of what we, we can all shoulder. And, um, but yeah, I think a lot about things like that. There was, there was a first time that we dro drove a car and the trust that maybe our parent or a teacher had in us to do that is pretty incredible. So again, you know, coming back to trust. This has been so insightful. Thank you so much for joining us today to share your thoughts. Before we go, though, we are collecting advice from successful women in our communities and sharing it with our Think Tank Forum. So we have three rapid-fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yes. Is there a lesson that you've recently learned that you wish you would have learned earlier in your career? 
The power of no. I think about what, you know, what would a guy do? They would definitely just say no if they needed to. And also to like, you know, go after jobs that are one or two levels of what you think you are, because it is very likely that you're already doing those things. Those would be the two things that I would, I would go back and tell myself that I really feel like I've only come to understand over the last I don't know, like five years and I'm in my mid to late thirties. So it took a while. So along those lines, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Maybe say 10 years ago. Oh, I would say go after your own goals, right? Like that it's okay to go after my own goals. I don't have to live out someone else's dream for me or be exactly what, you know, somebody thinks that I should be, whether it's a an employer or parent or whomever, just go after your own goals. All right. Last one. What do you think the most important skill to hone for a woman is in today's professional setting? I think there's a sense from women that we're still questioning whether we should be at the table and what does that look like and what does that mean? And can we show up as a guy would? And I have to say, like, I think the answer should be yes. I think that's a really important skill to know that you do, in fact, deserve to be there. And I also think an important skill for women is we feel the need to validate ourselves a lot. And so I always think about it like this, especially when I'm discussing budget. (laughs) Write the number on a paper, put it on the table, slide it across, and then, like, zip it. (laughs) Don't talk myself down on the behalf of someone else. You know, that's something that I think is really hard to do. Because we're wondering what we're worth, and we shouldn't. We, we, we are worth exactly what we think we are, probably actually more. Thank you so much, Caroline. Can you share the best way for our audience to connect with you if they have more questions or if they want to talk business with you? Of course. I, I would love that. They can always find me at carolinegary.com. It's C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-G-A-R-R-Y.com. Or you can email me and you can access me directly at caroline at carolinegary.com by email. Caroline Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. That is all for this episode of Think Tank of Three. Connect with us and her guests online, thinktankof3.com. We blog once a week. Subscribe and you'll get an email when we have a new podcast or a blog. And also make sure to find us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. We also have a private group on Facebook where we can all give and get advice freely. Look for the group on our Facebook page. And if you like what you heard in this podcast, share it. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And of course, if you have questions or topics you'd like to discuss, send us a message at thinktankof3 at gmail.com. You've made it this far in your career. But is something holding you back from getting to the top? We're ditching the culture of competitiveness. We're women working together to help other women. We are Think Tank of Three. I'm Audrea, your business development coach. I'm Julie, your digital marketing strategist. And I'm Catherine, your media and public speaking expert. Three women from different backgrounds coming together to empower, support, and encourage other women professionally and personally. Let's do this together.